Again, listeners, this is Mark Griffin, Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs. We are a team of software engineering experts led by legendary author Steve McConnell. Here, we believe every software team can be more successful at delivering higher levels of business value. Uh, in a normal episode, we'd be talking with one of our consultants, exploring one of our different types of engagements, and we would describe the issues those engagements were designed to address and how we solved them. Today, once again, we're continuing with our eighth episode in our series covering the key principles in Steve's new book, More Effective Agile. You all likely know Steve and his history of work in our industry, so I'm not going to repeat that again. So welcome back to the program, Steve. Mark, I always appreciate uh, the episodes and uh, look forward to a great conversation. Awesome, awesome. So in today's episode, we're going to cover three principles under the heading of More Effective Agile Leadership. And honestly, this is really the meat of the order, really the raison d'etre uh, that you, you wrote the book in the first place. Right. right. Yeah. 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 So um, let's touch on that first key principle from, from uh, the leadership section. That's really an interesting one to unpack. And, and that is express clear purpose with commander's intent. So, uh, you know, much has been said about this idea of servant leadership, meaning that agile teams are self-governing. Um, way back in, in one of the early podcasts, we did uh, talk together about autonomy and purpose. As a team self-governs, its purpose has to be clear. You have to have some pretty poor decisions being made if that's not the case. So talk about that for a second, the idea of outcomes based on clarity and objectives and autonomy, if you will. Well, I think you're right that this is really the meat of the book. And uh, um, I, I think that, that uh, you know, there's a lot of detail in the book, even though it's written for leaders. But I think that it's kind of easy with all those details to lose sight of the fact that it really is focused on how to lead your teams. And I take the notion of leadership quite literally, and that is that in order to lead, you need to be going somewhere and to have people follow you. And in order for you to lead and have people follow you, you have to be clear about where you're going. And, you know, this seems like it's a kind of rudimentary and maybe almost, uh, you know, painfully, painfully basic to be describing. But right. if you really look at it, we see a lot of leaders who actually fail to meet that criteria. They're not defining in clear terms where they're going. Their team's not behind them going to the same place. Uh, and so at a very basic level, the most basic level, really, they are are not leading. And so I think you're absolutely right that this is really getting to the core of the book, which is, which is in fact, leadership of agile teams. So, um, so yeah, so this key principle of commander's intent uh, is one that I think is, is a, you know, there are a couple of key principles here that are related, and I think we're going to get to the related one a little bit later in the talk. But, you know, this is one that says, we really need to make a really clear, vivid description of where we want the team to go. The idea of commander's intent is that we're going to create the most vivid picture of the desired end state that we possibly can, because we want the teams to be able to make good decisions on their own that are consistent with the vision that we have established for them. And if we can paint a really clear, vivid picture of that desired end state, then the team is enabled to make good decisions that are consistent with the objective of getting to that desired end state. But if we're not clear about where we want to go, then the team's decisions are going to be all over the place. And I've got a table in the book in this chapter uh, that um, 
has some interesting labels on it, I think. But it basically talks about it's one of these two by two matrix matrices, and it's got autonomy on one axis, and it's got clarity of objectives on the other axis. And it's pretty easy to do one of these, but not the other. And I think that I think one of the failure modes for agile teams, and especially agile leaders, is giving the teams autonomy, but then not providing clarity of objectives. And I think what you end up when that happens is. You know, the management cliche is that there's a distinction between delegation and abdication. And I think that you know, one way to describe that if you give high autonomy but low clarity of objectives is abdication. Uh, in the book, I describe that as fragmented outcomes, or you could also just describe it as anarchy. If you let the team do whatever <laughs> it wants Indeed. through lack of objectives, then, you know, what, what, what are you really trying to do for your business? It just, it really doesn't make any sense. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess to just kind of walk through the rest of the matrix, if we don't, if we have low autonomy uh, and low clarity of objectives, then probably we're just on a treadmill. The team's just kind of doing whatever's comfortable and familiar, uh, but it feels constrained. It's not going to venture outside of its comfort zone. You're kind of going to get what you've been getting. Uh, and, you know, again, there's there's certainly an absence of what we would, what we would call leadership there. Now, if we have cl high clarity of objectives, then... You know, I suppose the in, the in the description in the book, we've got the combination of high clarity of objectives and low autonomy. And this is basically command and control leadership, where we're kind of forcing the team to go, you know, not just uh, what to do, but how to do it. Um, you know, and the book is about agile leadership. And I would say that's bad agile leadership. But I think for awfully long time now, literally decades, that's just been viewed as not very good leadership, period. Uh, right. And so really what we want to get to is high autonomy with high clarity of objectives. And at that point, you know, number one, as a leader, we're going to get what we want because we've articulated it in enough detail for the team to know where we're going. But number two, we open up room for the team to innovate and you know, do things that surprise us in a pleasant way. You know, we, we can't have all the answers ourselves, obviously. Uh, and of course, that's the problem with command and control leadership is it kind of is based on the idea that the leader knows all the answers. And in software, that's just not possible. So if we can have high clarity of objectives and high autonomy, leave the team free to innovate on you know the details and to some degree, even on the bold strokes, as long as they're consistent with that uh, vividly described uh, end state, you know, then we can really get outcomes that are great for you know, our intended purposes, great for the business, makes the team feel good. You know, that becomes a, a really virtuous uh, approach. Right. No, that, that's a great thing. I think that table is a really good way to, to kind of look at the, uh, the different areas. I mean, this phrase commander intent, commander's intent comes from the military um, about expectations and communications. I know one of your favorite movies is the Russell Crowe film. Um, master and commander. So you, yeah. I'm sure there's some idea behind this North Star, right? The, the, the sailing commander that's kind of said, we're going that way, but I don't care how you get there. We're going that way. Right? So. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I debated actually with myself quite a bit whether to include this phrase commander's intent, because I do think there's a military connotation. And for some people there, that isn't always positive. But I included it in the review version of the book, and the positive response from reviewers was really overwhelming on this particular idea. And so I think what, you know, I think what I like about the phrase is it is and the surrounding description is it really makes it clear that the role of the commander is in some sense 
less to command and more to set direction. And so, you know, I use the phrase North Star, guiding light, uh, vanishing point. You know, I think what we see is that when teams don't have a clear uh, direction on the end state or the overall big picture, then what you end up with is lots of bickering and just uh, kind of uh, circular discussions on the details. And the reason these discussions are interminable in the details is because you don't have an overall objective that helps you resolve what the right answer is. You're trying to resolve it in the details instead of resolving it at the big picture level. So having that you know, overarching uh, main objective very clearly articulated so people can refer back to that in the details and say, okay, fine, we're stuck in the details, but which one of these supports the big picture best? Right. Uh, which one of these is really most consistent with commander's intent? I think that just streamlines a lot of decision making. And, you know, software projects are all about making decisions. I mean, if you think about it, an awful lot of a software project boils down to literally just making decisions at the coding level. You're making decisions about you know, how to write a loop or what to name a variable. At the design level, you're making decisions about how to design something. At the requirements level, you're making tons of decisions about how to interpret requirements and whether to interpret them in a more elaborate way or a less elaborate way. Uh, you know, and, and you're making all kinds of decisions as you go that can't possibly be articulated in detailed requirements just because it would be overwhelmingly bulky about how much flexibility do you want to build in versus how much do you want to write something that's really a lot more single purpose. And all of these decisions really become easier if we have a really clear idea of where we're going overall. And so, absolutely. Uh, and and so uh, any I think in software anything that aids decision making or gets those decisions all lined up and pointed generally in the direction we want the team to go is going to be helpful. I'm a big believer in my career of having a mental image, you know, some kind of mental image of where you're going. And I think one of our colleagues uses the phrase "begin with the end in mind." It's another another good way of kind of visualizing that, right? Yeah, sure. You know, of course, that's one of Stephen Covey's seven habits. And so uh, I think lots and lots of uh, leaders are familiar with Covey's book and easily, easily agree with the idea of begin with the end in mind. So yeah, uh, definitely no, uh, no uh, controversy on that point. Yeah. Well, good leadership in this situation needs to do two things well. Right. What, what are those two things? Hammer that, <laughs> hammer that point. Yeah. Yeah. So the two things that I talk about in the book are prioritize and communicate the priorities. And, you know, these are these are both. I mean, uh, I don't actually even remember if I call those I'd call that a key principle. I didn't call it a key principle, I guess. But um, it's such an integral part of succeeding with commander's intent uh, that. You know it, that I think these things both end up being important areas of emphasis, and I think uh, I think both of these are probably uh, maybe more challenging for people who come from analytical backgrounds, perhaps than people who who uh, maybe come from a more uh, you know big picture background. Uh, the prioritization really is one that I think is is really very common frustration for teams where they can't get their leaders to prioritize or the priorities shift too often. Uh, and I think that prioritizing clearly just is part of that 
um, you know, creating the clear vision for the team. You know, if you do a great job of creating a really clear vision of the desired end state, that actually takes care of a lot of the prioritization implicitly. But there's still going to be some details that you need to come back on and say, okay, this is more important than that. And if you don't do this, of course, then the teams are going to decide some issues one way and some issues a different way. And some of those will support your overall objectives and, and some of them won't. Yeah, absolutely. And then the second part of that is communicate the priorities. <laughs> this is one where um, I think that uh, not everybody in software is a proactive expert communicator. And uh, it was, that's, we, an, that's an understatement. I'd say. We promote people into leadership positions sometimes who just the communication part doesn't come naturally. And I think, think back to this point, and I don't know if Symantec still does this, but at one time, uh, they uh, looked for people in the product product manager role that they described as uh, hyper communicators. And the way they defined that was hyper communicators were people whose natural tendency is to communicate more under stress. And, you know, this is a pretty interesting concept. I think a lot of us, and probably me included, uh, under stress, we tend to communicate less and become a little bit more introspective. Yeah, right. uh, and this is not what we need in a leader. We need in a leader where under stress, they reach out and become more expansive. And, you know, this kind of falls into the category of there are certain aspects of leadership that I can confidently describe, but that I don't necessarily model in my own behavior. And I think that's one of them where you just a really effective leader is going to be expansive under stress and, uh, and, and communicate. And I think the other aspect of this, of course, is, you know, there's the, the sort of the mathematician streak in a lot of software people where solving the problem is sufficient for us. It doesn't really matter whether we share the solution with other people or not. <laughs> just, you know, yes. the satisfaction of solving it is enough. So the idea that we, we can't just come up with a nice set of priorities and write them down and look at them and admire them. We actually have to communicate them to the team for them to do any good. And in this area, I think of that scene from Dr. Strangelove where um, they're in the war room and and uh, and uh, Dr. Strangelove confesses that they didn't actually get around to telling anyone about the doomsday machine. And, <laughs> and uh, the other Peter Sellers character president, I can't remember his name, but the president says the point of a doomsday machine is you have to tell people you have a doomsday machine. Why didn't you tell people you have a doomsday machine? So I think the priorities are kind of similar. You have to tell people that you have priorities. If you don't tell them, then you don't really have priorities. <laughs> they never know. They'll never know. But there's a fine line, right, between refusing to prioritize and then changing prioritize changing the priority all the time, right? How do you what are some things you can you can suggest that, that, that strikes the right balance there? I think this is where going back to the commander's intent the top level principle of commander's intent helps a lot. If we have defined a really clear vision of the desired end state, and it's actually truly the desired end state, we're, we're not going to see that much of a shift in priorities uh, at the details. You know, businesses change their minds, they change strategy. So that's kind of inevitable. And I don't really see that as a software leadership issue. I see that as it's either the businesses, the business making a good decision or the business making a bad decision. But either way, it's not really a software leadership issue per se. Um, but yeah, I think that, uh, you know, so there's the, the priorities shifting at the very top level are either a function of, number one, the business shifting priorities, and then we've just got to roll with that. Or number two, really a result of the fact that we didn't articulate that desired end state clearly enough in the first place. And it's not really a shift in 
priorities. It's an articulation that's different from what we incompletely or incorrectly articulated in the first place. Or yeah. And I think once we get that done at the top level, then at the underlying level, you know, I mean, one of the interesting things about software projects is our understanding of what we're doing always evolves over the course of a system. And I don't think there's probably ever been a project in the history of the software universe where at the end of the project, the team, or you know, the end of the release, the team looks at it and says, yep, we did everything perfectly. We made every decision correctly. Can't think of a single thing we would do better. Uh, no, I mean, it's such a learning exercise to go through a software project. I think every team, by the time they get to the end of a release, always has a huge list of all kinds of things they wish they'd done differently. That's actually positive. It shows the team is learning uh, and getting better, and they can apply all those learnings to the to the next uh, go round. I mean, adapt and learn has been has been a key through all of the uh, the key principles we've talked about throughout. So that's, I think that's a good solid thing to do. So let's leave it at that. That's a good. Uh, I think we we talked well about that. How about um, the next key principle we want to address today is called model key agile behaviors. Uh, and this is really about what an effective leader shows his or her team through their own behavior, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe this is the, the right way to go through this is just to give some examples of those behaviors that are really effective. I mean, the, a lot of our listeners remember some of these from prior podcasts. And if they don't, they should go back and listen to our earlier podcasts to, to hear some of these messages. But why don't you touch on a few of those just to kind of share some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, some of the key principles in the book are are about decisions that get made and they're kind of a little bit static. You know, once you integrate developers and testers or testing into the development team, that's not really something that the the leader can model. Uh, but there definitely are other things a leader can model. I think you just mentioned inspect and adapt. I mean, that is clearly one where the leader can model the idea of always paying attention to what's going on, always trying to learn from experience, and then always being willing uh, to change behavior to get better. You know, the, the purpose of inspect and adapt is not is not really to fix something. It's to set up a mindset where you're constantly getting better. So the related principle is a growth mindset, just the idea that, you know, it's not that we're good or bad, it's that we're constantly getting better. And it, you know, if you have, if you're applying inspect and adapt and you really truly have a growth mindset, you're going to get to be pretty good eventually. You just, you can't help it, right? Um, and, uh, and so I think those are really two really key principles. I think another one or another pair of principles that are really important are uh, decriminalizing mistakes and fixing the system, not the individual. You know, growth mindset and inspect and adapt, you can have like senior unofficial leaders who model those behaviors. Um, and I think that can go a really long way. Uh, but I think something that the, the senior leader in the organization or senior leaders, official senior leaders in the organization can model in a way that the unofficial leaders really can't is like decriminalizing mistakes. They set the tone for the organization of saying, okay, fine, you know, that was the wrong decision as, as we now know, maybe we didn't know at the time, but we learned something from it. Let's make sure that, you know, we don't do it again. Um, but, you know, the key point here is let's learn from it, not punishing whoever made the mistake. Software is very difficult. People are going to make mistakes. And the senior leader is the one who sets, who communicates that the organizational priority is not avoiding mistakes. It's, you know, learning from the mistakes and, you know, not making stupid mistakes or careless, really it's not stupid, it's careless mistakes, right. uh, thoughtless mistakes, but sets the tone of saying, okay, you know, we, we pick ourselves up, we move on. It's okay. Um, 
And I think similarly, I think the tone of fixing the system, not the individual, this is another thing that people who don't have official leadership roles can't really lead on. The, again, here's one where the official leader sets the tone for the organization and, and that leader's in a position to say, okay, yeah, you know, this isn't working, but I can see that this is because of some policy or practice we have. Maybe it's an official practice. Maybe it's a tacit work process we haven't examined closely enough for a while. Uh, but I think they can set the tone that the organization is that the organization cares about the system supporting the individuals and isn't going to blame the individuals for flaws in the system. And of course, you know, I'm sure probably everyone who listens to this will can think of examples of where the, they've been in an organization that has blamed individuals for something that is really uh, an aspect Systemic. of the system. Sure. Um, so those are the ones that jump to my mind. I mean, there are others that I think are you know, important. I probably, the very top tier, I might include the business focus one. I think that's an area where right. technical staff tend to meet, need a fair amount of coaching to get to the point where they truly have a business focus. But this whole, really the whole cluster of behaviors around growth and growing and decriminalizing mistakes, I think that, you know, I think that's really where the big leadership opportunity is. Sure. And and just as a spoiler alert, we're going to come back to the decriminalized mistakes in the next podcast in, in, in more detail. So that'll be good to kind of explore that. Yeah, it's an important topic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that the, the business focus is, an, is another good one. That if I had to look at the list of things that you were mentioning, that's one of the ones I would raise. I think there's um, lots of reasons for always having the team come back to this notion of, of business value and their decision making is, is thinking about what does it mean in terms of business value that they're shipping, creating, working on, et cetera. Keep that focus in mind. And I think the leadership as, as a key behavior and, and if leadership does that, then I think that that tends to be uh, yeah, trickle through and become part of their culture. So I think it's a good, that's a good thing to think about. Yeah. You know, H.L. Mencken said that no one ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the American public. And uh, in my more <laughs> cynical moments, I apply that to software business skills and say no one ever went broke underestimating the business acumen of uh, technical staff. Um, and uh, I don't really mean that, but uh, it is a common weak spot, and uh, I do think that it pays for uh, leaders to uh, help their uh, technical staff develop a more of a business orientation. Sure. Well, that brings us to the last key principle we'll cover today, which um, kind of falls out of the commander's intent discussion and, and sort of not micromanaging. And that, that principle is manage to outcomes, not details. And, and this is really about commitments made by the organization. Um, those are critical for the success of the business. So agile teams commit to certain things in, in, in alignment with that business outcome, right? Yeah, I think, you know, I really debated uh, whether to include these as separate key principles, whether there's really enough of a distinction between um, expressing clear purpose with commander's intent as one and manage to outcomes, not details as another. Uh, what I ended up settling in my own mind is that the overarching principle is managed to outcomes. And I think, again, this really is one that is aimed, uh, is one that is aimed at uh, leaders who come from an analytical background who have a natural tendency to dive into details. And so I think this is a point that needs emphasizing uh, for this particular uh, audience. 
And, you know, of course, this for me personally, this is a challenge that I had to overcome in my own leadership journey where you just you have to get to the point where you're willing to give up on some of the details uh, or most of the details or depending on how high you are as a leader, maybe pretty much all of the details. Uh, and so managing to outcomes, not details is the general goal. And then the way you do that is by expressing clear purpose with commander's intent. Uh, that's how you make sure that the details are going to work out in a way that's satisfactory. So, you know, in Scrum, um, it's it's interesting that you use the word commitment, and I do talk about that in the book. Uh, I think that the word commitment has gotten a lot of attention in Scrum. Of course, we've got the, I think, the asinine chicken and pig story, which is, I'm thankfully has been deprecated uh, and we don't talk about it anymore. So I'm really glad about that. But I think what you can see even in uh, like the Scrum Guide is that there is not really good alignment among people who are leading in the Scrum community on the role of commitment. And I think you can, you know, I've done enough committee work that when I read documents, I can kind of tell when something looks like it's A, been written by a committee and B, the result of some compromise where uh, it's pretty common in, in committee written documents that people will end up using you know, weasel words or vague, vague words where <laughs> it basically covers up the fact that there's not an agreement. So when you hit a document, it's been really specific. And then you get to a point where you're like, huh, that wording is, that wording is actually out of character with what I've been reading and seems a lot less specific and directive than what I've been reading up to this point. You know, my, my mind goes to say, okay, this is probably a point where they couldn't quite come to agreement. So they basically they didn't decide. <laughs> they put in vague words that make it sound like they decided. But when you try to figure out what the words mean, they really didn't. So so this notion of commitment in, in Scrum in particular uh, is, I think, one that's a little bit of a loaded uh, topic. Uh, but I think truly at the organizational level, Commitment is necessary. Organizations expect their individuals and their teams to commit to completing objectives. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, organizations' clients assume that the organization will commit uh, and deliver on their commitments. And the way the organization delivers on commitments to its customers is by having its staff deliver on commitments internally. So I think commitment is a pretty big deal. Uh, but I think what that gives us a tool to help us avoid uh, micromanaging details because if we can focus on, well, what is the real commitment and then let the team actually decide how to meet the commitment, uh, then I think, you know, we're, we're, we're doing a, taking some steps toward applying the ideas of autonomy, mastery, and purpose, uh, you know, letting the teams be self-organizing, self-directing, uh, and, and so on. And, and I think one of the things that makes this workable in agile projects, Scrum in particular, is that, you know, if we were setting an objective that was a year out, well, it'd be pretty tough to manage just to the outcomes, but not the details. But in Scrum in particular, we're really setting objectives that are like one to three weeks out. And so that's really not that much time for a team to come off the rails. You know, if we've done a good job as a leader in setting the, making the objectives clear, expressing clear purpose with commander's intent, the team's not going to get too far off the rails in one to three weeks. And if they do, then that's an opportunity for us to go back and apply that, uh, that question of was the problem with the, the team or was the problem with the system, or maybe was the problem with me as a leader where I really didn't set clear enough 
right. uh, commander's intent. And maybe it's actually a learning experience for the leader when that happens in how to lead more effectively. Yeah. So, you know, I think about this, this a little bit in, in a quid pro quo sense, I guess, right? The team is going to commit to leadership. They're going to get something done at the end of every sprint, their sprint goals. And in exchange for that, leadership backs off, doesn't micromanage. I mean, there's certainly some counterexamples of, of some bad leadership here, some anti-patterns. What, what, what kind of examples can you give there where, where things are kind of, you know, they really get to be not good behaviors, <laughs> not good practices? Oh, I can give you a couple, especially that are related to this, uh, the current pandemic. Uh, you know, when we did our working from home survey uh, back in, uh, what was it, May, I guess, um, I think we published it May 1st. Uh, we had queried people on what had changed in terms of their agile practices. And what we found was that uh, most teams were still doing daily uh, standups, you know, in some form or other. Uh, it was pretty common for teams when they're working remotely to have moved to daily standups like two or three days a week. To me, that's a little counterintuitive. I think if you're not having the incidental interaction uh, decreasing the frequency of those probably doesn't make sense, but we heard lots of teams say that they were doing that. But what I think also doesn't make any sense is we heard some teams say that they had uh, increased the daily standups to two to three times a day. And so, <laughs> right. yeah, so, uh, so that's an example, I think, of, you know, somebody in those scenarios is way too concerned about the teams coming off the rails. The worst case that I heard about, actually, I just heard about locally. It didn't come through our survey, but there was a local organization that had hourly check-in video calls all day. And I just, I can't imagine how that would There's feel. There's some trust be. issues there, oh, right? Oh my gosh. It's got to be, right? Yeah. Being on the receiving end of that where you're getting interrupted, you know, every 45 minutes or whatever to, to check in, I just... Uh, sounds unbelievably painful, and if you wanted a recipe for eroding trust, that would you know that would totally, be a totally terrific be recipe it. for that. No doubt. Well, in, in normal times when we're all not sequestered, there are certain kinds of behaviors I think you would see where <clears throat> management or leadership might might pull resources off a team because they have a fire somewhere else. Those are very disruptive to team behavior and team activities. Right? Those are things you don't necessarily want to see happen. Uh, in, in, a commit, in a committed structure like that, right? Yeah, it's a tough problem. I, I talk about the in the organiz, uh, team organization or organization of agile teams, the section of the book, I talk about production support as one of the organizational challenges. And by organization, I don't mean company. I mean the way that people are structured and organized inside the company. In other words, how their time is allocated and what the reporting relationships are and so on. You know, companies have to support challenges or issues that come up with their production system. So that's sure. that's just sure. a given. Uh, but there are better ways and worse ways to do that. And I think, you know, we certainly have seen ways of doing that that undermine a team's ability to deliver on its commitments. And, you know, I don't think there's any perfect answer I think I say this in the book, but I don't know that we've ever talked to a company that's 100% satisfied with how it has its production support organized. Um, you know, but I think there are you, there are often better answers, and there certainly are some bad answers there. Uh, certainly, just letting stuff come in whenever it comes in and assigning it randomly to people on the team, uh, whoever the assigner feels like assigning it to that day is, I would say, is an anti-pattern. Right. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean. 
it seems like that might be a little off topic for the principle of managing the outcomes, not details. Maybe what it really says is, is if you care about outcomes, then sometimes you do have to sweat some of the details. And, you know, one of the classic jobs of a leader is to clear impediments. And I think uh, uh, the way that production support is organized is, is a pretty common impediment. Uh, and I think it's also a great example of what we were talking about earlier of fix the system, not the individual, where right. it's that is a sy systemic issue that cannot be fixed at the individual level. It has to be fixed by the leader or you know, maybe even someone above the leader. Well, you know, the, the manage the outcomes thing, I think that, that infers uh, more of a black box model. I mean, it's a good example from the testing world, right? This idea of inputs and outputs and, and monitoring for that rather than trying to look at how the sausage is made internally, you know? So I think I think doing that might be a good way to think about it mentally. Yeah, you know, I talked about that in the book and I think I talked about it in a different chapter, but um, the idea that you treat the team like a black box and you define, you help the team define the inputs and then you check whether the outputs are what they were supposed to be, but you don't really get involved with what happens inside the box. You know, I think as a first order approximation, that's a good first order approximation. I do think it's an approximation. You know, I had lots of, I actually had lots of pushback from reviewers on that point uh, saying, really? well, interesting. yeah, it was interesting to me. And, and some of it, I think, honestly, to me suggested leaders who maybe were hadn't gotten to the point yet where they were able to give up on all the details they should have given up on. And some of it to me, I thought was pretty legitimate pushback in saying, look, you know, I need to understand what's going on, at least so that I can jump in and provide coaching if coaching is needed. Uh, you know, I need to have some visibility of how the team's interacting so that when they come to me with issues, I can help them address their issues or facilitate how the issues get addressed. So I think, you know, I think there's merit to those points, but, you know, I think it's a slippery slope and I think you have to be careful as a leader, especially if you're an analytical person whose natural tendency is to dive into details. Now, I think, I think that uh, you're probably better off erring on the side of being not detailed enough because given your natural tendency to dive into details, when you think you're not detailed enough, then you're probably still too detailed. Right. So maybe a maybe a gray box model here. Yeah, right, right, something like that. And I think that's why you know that's another reason why I ended up basically beating this principle with two key key principles: were manage the outcomes, not details, and expressing clear purpose with commander's intent. Yeah, you know, if you keep coming back to these two key principles as a leader, you know the one tells you basically what to do: manage the outcomes, and then the other one tells you how to do it. Okay, you know is the reason I'm not managing the outcomes or that I want to get into the details because I haven't expressed clear purpose with commander's intent. And I think that's a good reality check for the leader is just to say, anytime I start being tempted to dive into details, is it because I actually need to do a better job of defining a vivid desired end state for the team? Well, that's perfect. I think that's uh, we're going to leave it right there for today. Um, why don't I I'll give you an opportunity to close with that patent quote that you like to include in the section of the book. You remember that? that yeah, quote? you know, I, I included the literal quote uh, in the book. The quote that I, I heard uh, informally uh, that was attributed to patent is probably not literally correct, but I like the wording a little better, which is basically, uh, you know, don't tell people how to do things. Uh, tell them what you want them to accomplish and let them astonish you with the results. And, uh, and I think that's a good guiding principle for software leaders is, uh, you know, 
we can't know all the details. We might be the smartest person in the room, but that doesn't mean we're the smartest about everything. Absolutely. And, and so we've got to give, and we got to give room for everybody on the team to be a smart person in the room as well. And so if we can be clear about the objectives, they really can astonish us with the results. And I think that may be in the final sanity check we could should talk about today for the leader is ask yourself, are your teams astonishing you with results? And if they're not, is that possibly because you're not opening up enough room for them to do that? Right. I hear the word, the phrase underwhelmed very often in, in, <laughs> yeah. in, in conversations, but yeah, I think that's true. Well, Steve, great conversation. Appreciate your advice again. Uh, we also appreciate you taking the time and talking through these principles with us. Absolutely. And thank you listeners as well. It's because of you that we recently passed 10,000 listens on the podcast, which is a really fun milestone. Very cool stuff. So be sure to tune in again for another episode of Inspect and Adapt, the Constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host. Ostaszewski has been our audio engineer, and Devin Musgrave is our producer. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Stitcher, on Google Podcasts, on Tidal, wherever you normally find us. If you have comments or like to talk to one of our practitioners, or you have ideas for future podcasts, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. I'd love to hear from you. Keep staying safe out there, everybody, and have a great next sprint.